0: Welcome to the Managing Madrid Podcast. This is your host, Kian Zobani, and today's episode is in two parts. Part one, um, we revisit the Champions League final from the year 2000, where Real Madrid beat Valencia 3-0. Myself, Eduardo Alvarez, and Matt Wiltsy, we we rewatched it this morning uh, and last night and uh, took notes on it, and uh, this is our historical segment. So we try to do this every Thursday. It doesn't always happen, but when it does, it's like fireworks. It's so much fun to revisit. Um, old Real Madrid games, and then part two we have a bunch of questions that came in from madridistas and patrons. So uh, Lucas Navarrete and I go through that. So stick around after part one for part two, where we discuss more relevant Real Madrid things like um, who's going to start against Levante, some of the injury updates, um, and other questions about contracts and some of the team systemic issues and whatnot. Um, before we get underway, we do have to plug a couple just big things that happened. So if you go on um, you'll see a couple things that stand out. One is I interviewed Julian Draxler and Felix Magath, two of Raul's former colleagues at Schalke for a story about Raul um, and kind of his the way he left Real Madrid and, and his legacy at Schalke. Really fun to, to work on this one. And what stood out was that Draxler was super excited to do this interview because he loves Raul, and so his friendship with Raul was one of these kind of unexpected things that came out of the story, and um, there's a few things that I didn't include in the piece, but I posted on my Twitter quotes that kind of stand out, so go check that out, and also the School of Real Madrid, we put out a video about some tactical terms, so often you hear about, you hear some tactical jargon in football writing, which, um, not necessarily a bad thing, but... We went and simplified those terms so you can understand what they mean um, when you're reading those articles. Just so it makes it a little bit easier for you. Um, All right, this is the Managing Madrid podcast. Let's get underway. Here's part one. Let's go.
1: Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. Wonderful lads that do a great job there, and worth reading about that man there.
0: Welcome to part one of the Managing Madrid podcast, the much-anticipated historical segment where we are about to break down Real Madrid's eighth Champions League title, which they lifted in Paris in 2000, against a Valencia team that were the favorites, and joining me to do this um, is Ed Alvarez, who's been watching Real Madrid games since 1865. Ed,
1: how are you doing? I'm, I'm very well, thank you.
0: And also joining us is young pup Matt Wilty. Matt, how are you doing? <laughs> doing good, Kian, doing good. Uh Eduardo, I I don't were you at this one? Did you travel was, with the team too? Or you were doing the you, you were at this game?
1: I was living in Israel and uh the day I, I didn't think I was going and the day before the match a friend called me that he had a ticket. And uh this was when when the matches were played uh midweek on a Wednesday. So had I been in Madrid, it would have been almost impossible to get a flight to Paris. Mm. But because I was in Israel, uh, I mean, there were plenty of flights to, to, uh, from Israel from from uh, Tel Aviv to to Paris. So I I just couldn't believe I was there. It took like ten minutes. Uh, I had the ticket, I bought the the plane ticket, and the following morning I was in Paris. I, I, unbelievable. Wow. What was the atmosphere
0: like? Because I've I've heard mixed things from Champions League finals because it's there's a lot of people who just kind of fill the seats and then there's both sets of fans what was the atmosphere like
1: this could be more the case right now but back then it was it was a spanish final so it was kind of like a huge party everyone i mean we we spaniards took over paris and everyone was celebrating in the street it was like a gift pretty much
0: can you um give us context of this game what should the listener know about before we start talking about the game itself
1: well, on a couple of words on the Valencia side, uh, it was a extremely physical, very very tough side, with uh, unbelievably fast forwards, um, Claudio Lopez, Ilie Angulo, and uh, they did very well for that for that three four year period, and they reached the final again the following year against Bayern Munich. Um, It wasn't a pretty team to watch, but it was a lot of fun. Um, And uh, especially Claudio Lopez, for instance, he drove Barcelona nuts. He scored two, three goals every time he faced Barcelona. He was so fast that Ronald Koeman could ever. And uh, Real Madrid was in a very weird transition phase uh we'll talk about the lineup but it's the most bizarre lineup i've ever seen and and the substitutions are like a joke uh yeah and, it's uh, true he, he, i mean the bosque ends up playing with five center backs that's it, it's just crazy but for i don't know the chemistry was good they they got along with each other and uh it ended up being a, a very success, successful team even though he wasn't this one was like the pre-galactico
0: era. So the lineup. So this is. We should just go over the lineup because it, you're you're completely right. It is it is a complete ridiculous lineup. So there's five at the back. So Helguera is this, essentially the sweeper, and the five at the back are Helguera as the as the sweeper, Ivan Campo, Aitor Caranca, beside him Salgado and Roberto Carlos, the fullbacks. There is only one central midfielder in this team, and it's Fernando Redondo. So it's essentially like a five-three-two, um, but it's Redondo, and then the two central midfielders beside him are Raúl and McManaman, and then you have Anelka Morientes up top. So in this team, you have two number nines, one central midfielder, one forward, one winger, three central defenders, two wing backs, and I, I got to tell you, I, I when I watched it, it felt like if this if you Put this team in a time machine and just put them on a football pitch now. I don't. I think they would be. I think they would. They would be kind of demoralized by the end of it. I don't know what would happen to them. I. I, I worry uh, for them.
1: I don't know. I. I. I kind of like the way uh, they played together, even though it, it looked disjointed. But, uh, and I would say that it was almost a, a five-two-three because McManaman played. everywhere on the pitch and and helped Redondo a bit and uh, the back three were really good uh, i mean neither of them was uh, a memorable center back but they the three together i mean uh, Valencia could hardly have a shot on goal for for the full match they were every cover was perfect among the three it's it's, it's just uh, and then the full backs you you forget how good they, they were because yeah they keep going back and forth for for the full match. They cover so much ground, so even if it looks kind of dysfunctional, when you see it on the pitch, and again against a, a pretty tough side, very physical side, they they did they did well.
0: It did work. Um, I also Matt, I want to get your thoughts on the tactical side of things. I when I was. Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, because in the intro, in the show, I said Valencia were favorites in this game. I think they were, right? This is just from what I remember when I was watching this when I was younger. And the only—I wouldn't have had much confidence in going into this game, apart from the fact that um, they played so well against Manchester and Bayern Munich leading up to it. Other other than that, I really felt like Valencia was the favorite in this game, weren't they?
1: I mean— I don't think Valencia is ever a favorite against Real Madrid. <laughs> I suppose it was just
0: more of the context of the season though. Like they they seemed they were better know, domestically. I yeah. Um, I know,
1: but it, it it was a more conservative side. Uh, they depended a lot on on the forwards for scoring, like the rest of the team maybe Mendieta, but there was there was no other threat. And Real Madrid just on the pitch again a very weird side, but you I mean raul morientes and anelka could all score at any point and then another thing with the with the center back trio every every set piece was a chance of scoring because you had three excellent headers of the ball plus the usual t- attackers so i don't know the, this team had her had their weapons yeah
0: it had a lot of individual brilliance i think and and some legends in their peaks for sure um Matt, what was your thought when you saw the lineup, and then, and then, kind of how you saw it unfold? What, what yeah, you, so you know? uh, I, I mean, I was
2: shocked at the five three two, um, or like Ed said, almost a five two three. And uh, Ed, was that typical? Like, is that the is that the formation they played all season long?
1: Um, yes, uh, from like mid season onwards, um, Del Bosque decided that he was kind of too risky the way he was playing with four at the back. And then then he started playing with Caranca, El Gran Campo. And then, I don't know if things worked. Uh, he used this... This is a bit a bit like the false nine with the Spanish national team. He did the same thing. He used it in one match, and suddenly then they did it with the following season, immediately.
2: Okay, yeah. Not, it's interesting how you um, talked about Valencia being a really fast and physical team because the one of the first things I noticed that what Real Madrid did was the back line, especially those three center backs, sat so deep. And so there was so much space in front of them that Valencia could kind of settle down and midfield play feet, but there was never any chance of them going to be in a foot race with uh, Helguera, Campo, any of those guys. So that was one of the first things I noticed is there were no balls in behind. So uh, they probably... I, I I didn't know if that was just like kind of the um style Madrid had played all season or if that was just a tactic for the for the final that game but it seems like judging by your uh, your um description of the Valencia attack all season it sounds like that was something that they had planned
1: Valencia had this resource and, and you you Lopez goals against Barcelona there's there's a bunch of YouTube videos that are fantastic and it's pretty much Mendieta or Farinos or even even a center back just hitting the ball <laughs> as hard as they can. And and Lopez. It was scary how how, how that was probably another reason for, for Del Bosque to play three at the back and have them so deep. Because that that was pretty much their weapon and other than that it was really tough for them to to do some build up uh, with with their their midfield
0: yeah that's one of the things that struck me too like i was so I'm always curious to see how these games hold up when you're older as opposed to when you watch them as a kid um I remember just watching this and there was I felt a lot of tension and I was nervous about it um obviously when you watch it it's almost twenty years later um you know the outcome I was kind of just surprised at how how disappointing Valencia were to me I don't know i i I expected that this was tighter than it was um and and then you go and look at the stats in this game. Um Real Madrid had 11 shots on target, Valencia had one and they didn't have as much of the ball. Um their build up wasn't great like you said, Ed, and like some of those time, like there was even Mendieta himself who was so great. Um there were times where he just was clearing it and I thought he had better options to kind of build the attack a little bit. Um but I I I just at the top of the show, I think like if you were to you know, often the Roberto Carlos versus Marcelo debate comes up, and um, I think a lot of people feel Marcelo has overtaken it, but I, I got to tell you, when I watch Roberto Carlos, the more and more I watch him revisit yeah. him for this, um, for this historical segment, the more I kind of lean towards, like, I don't know if it, there's a clear-cut winner. I, don't, I think it's closer than people think. I don't think there's maybe one clearly above the other, but this guy was, like, transcendent at times. Like, there was nobody that could comprehend or deal with him on that flank. Like Angloma could kind of keep up with him. Mendieta had no chance. Angulo had no chance. <laughs> Jukic had no chance. He would like have overhit touches but still catch up. He would, you know, Mendieta would have a head start running and he would still catch up. Um, and I think at There's one, one, one point. One instance of that that mm, is,
1: is just, you laugh when you watch it. Yeah, the tackle Mareta right? that has like 10 meters. Of yeah. <laughs> and it lasts for like two seconds Yeah, and he's already taking him over
0: so shortly after one of the things that caught my eye is that at one point Roberto Carlos steals it from him and Mendieta just looks at Roberto Carlos like he's just kind of dumbfounded at like this alien he has to play he has no idea what to do because he's such a physical (laughs) freak Um, it was really it was I think that was one of the highlights for me apart from Redondo who I thought was great in this game Uh, I just I love the way Roberto Carlos played (laughs) yeah every
2: every time I watch these historical matches that feature Roberto Carlos, I mean, I'm just you remember how good he was and I, you he's one of those guys we don't like we're not romanticizing. like he was my God, what a player. He was just incredible an athletic beast, just an athletic beast,
0: yeah, I also think like, you know, part of the knock about Roberto Carlos is that he wasn't good defensively, right? i think I think part of the reason was because. It was more that he was just not always in position to defend, more so that he was a weak defender. Like, individually, I think he can hold his own. He could recover well uh, and, and steal the ball. He had that going for him, too. Like, I think maybe that part may have been overblown. Certainly, he wasn't Paolo Maldini or anything, but he was, uh, I think he may have been a bit underrated in that aspect a little bit. Um, Ed, when you, when you watch Raul play in this role, he was like essentially a central midfielder. He was playing so deep. What did you think of this Raul performance?
1: I mean, it's, it's not the best, uh, it's not the, the, the position that exploited his ability, uh, abilities the best offensively, but defensively, he was such a help for the midfield that, um, in, in terms of gaining balls back or tracking back, it, it's just so dependable that you, you learn to appreciate how transcendent he was, even though he was not playing as a forward. And, uh, obviously the fact that he had the choice to kill the match off in a one-on-one is, it's just, uh, it, it's just fantastic. Uh, it's kind of like the gift or the price to, 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 the, to the sacrifice he put during most, most of the match. Yeah. It was kind um, of symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: that, that season he played as a left, I think that was a season where he played so much as a left winger and he still led the league in scoring. Yes. I don't know it was that one, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, That's one. it's interesting you look at Raul and McManaman uh, they both played so narrow and McManaman wasn't playing as a winger in this game at all like he was mostly central he was working defensively he was kind of bringing the ball up the field Um, and it was mostly Salgado and Roberto Carlos who provided the width Um, and that's another one I think you know Salgado I don't know if it was Kili Gonzalez was just terrible defensively or something but Salgado would just walk past him anytime he wanted to and uh this this was this was So this was, to me, peak Salgado, peak Roberto Carlos, peak Redondo, yeah. peak Raul.
1: And yeah. peak McManaman. Peak McManaman. Um, I think Calguero you could probably throw
0: into that mix too.
1: Yes, yes. Well, of course, <laughs> peak uh, Ivan Campo. <laughs> I've never seen Ivan Campo play this well, yeah. ever. <laughs> but going back to McManaman for a second, um, <clears throat> the idea of, of McManaman that most football fans have is is the winger that was extremely fast and dribbled and uh, he could take on uh, a player once and again but the McManaman that played for Real Madrid was a completely different player he had just lost a step and uh, he kind of changed the way he played and became like an all-around midfielder offensively Uh, always a dependable pass when someone was under pressure with the ball and uh, every once in a while, he would have this technical, this uh, moment of technical ability that you wouldn't believe. And so I, I really, really enjoyed watching him play, how he just supported everyone on the build-up, and uh, he scored a, a few goals with Real Madrid that were unbelievable. The one, the volley on on this final is, is yeah. just a, an, an amazing moment of quick decision and and impeccable execution. I remember another one that he scored that Roberto Carlos had a cross over 40 meters from left to right and he just um
0: against, against Real Oviedo that one.
1: He, yes, exactly. He got it first touch. It's just shocking goal. That so, I've um, never
0: seen that anybody else use that technique by the way. I don't think yep. I, I think it's a very rare and unique technique.
1: It's like a scissor kick but not yeah. to your back but just <laughs> just jumping. It's more of a kung jumping fu kick. Forwards.
0: Um, I know in terms of like um and like tactical stuff, this game I think was interesting because of just some of the chaos it it brought but um one of the other things I noticed that morientes in this game also had to drop deep and kind of i think like by nature, they almost had to do that because um just to kind of bring some numbers to the midfield, but morientes i I didn't really like love him in that role where he had to like drop deep and some of his touches were were clumsy, and his passing wasn't great. Like compared to Raúl, Raúl was so neat and tidy yeah. with his touches in midfield, right? You know, but that that's not his role. And obviously, he scored. I think that one of the notes I had was in that the first goal that Real just scored, obviously it was an Elka hold-up play. Like he got fouled, and he was doing that often in this game. He got fouled, and I think what struck me about that free kick that Roberto Carlos did that led to the goal, got had to have been like from forty yards, I think. And yeah. There was no like, now I think if you line that up, you have like a decoy, right? You have someone pretending that like he's going to cross, someone pretending he's going to shoot. It was just like clear that only Roberto Carlos was standing there. He was about to shoot a rifle. And, uh, and he, that run up, he was almost at half to start his run. It was like just really something to see Like, you know, nobody else would have the aud- audacity to shoot from there unless you're Ronaldo or something. But, um, and it was almost on target before it got blocked. But I think Salgado's, um, Salgado did really well to get that cross into Morientes for that first goal.
1: Yes, yes. He's, it's, it's a hustle to get to the ball first. That was that type of hustle was Salgado's trademark. Um, but you see that uh, when he was uh, good in terms of fitness, he wasn't bad technically either. I mean, he gets three or four balls that are crossed 20, 25 meters, and just, he just um, kills it first touch yeah completely controlled um things that you wouldn't associate with with Salgado in terms of the type of player he was and he was an extremely competent fullback
2: he even had that um volley late in the second half from outside the box that yeah. rippled the back of the net i mean i i didn't expect that from salgado and uh but Kian, back to a point you made on on the roberto carlos free kick the other thing too i was thinking about is Real Madrid were ripe for the counterattack if something went wrong with that free-kick and if it just hit the wall and that wall disbanded and just went straight down the throat of Real Madrid, which which almost happened. Um, But it's interesting to note on all three goals, every single goal that Real Madrid scored, um, the origin of the goal came from a set-piece. So the first one was a Roberto Carlos free-kick. The second one was a long throw-in that wasn't cleared properly by Valencia and then McManaman um, hit that volley. And then the last one was actually a Valencia corner kick, which Real Madrid won one uh, one long ball out of the from the box, and Raul was in, and he had uh, all that time to just take the one v one. And um, I think this game there was a lot of stop start, and so the team that lost focus on those on those throw ins, on those free k- free kicks, on the set pieces, is the team that ultimately lost the game.
0: Yep. Ed, Ed, I know you have to run, but so, so I, I want to just give you some space to, before you leave, to if you wanted to share anything particular about this.
1: Couple of couple of points. What a terrible shirt! <laughs> it's
0: a baggy. No, you're huge, kidding. Just
1: that's my favorite shirt. one. <laughs> Come on.
0: Oh my! God.
1: Come on. It looks over. Everyone looks oversized. It de- like It is a bit baggy. They from you're their right. older brother. It's baggy. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah that's true. The the long
0: sleeve <laughs> version of this is a bit. Tidier. It's a bit more <laughs> slim fitting, which they were all capital. But the design itself was spectacular. Ed. really?
1: <laughs> I think it's just terrible. Oh my god! The, no. Anyway, way. Um, okay. Another thing that that uh, that is really really good if you're a freak of Real Madrid. Sanchez playing as a as a midfielder. Mm. Um, we were mentioning. His, uh, yeah. Del Bosque started with three centre backs, and then the substitutions are Savio. Uh, Sanchis and Hierro, so with mm. another two center backs. So he's playing five center backs. Not even Javier Clemente did this uh, ever. I, this is just mental. But Sanchis does very well. He's just like 10 minutes on the pitch, but he used to play as a cent- uh, as a central midfielder when when he was in the youth teams and the first season he played for Real Madrid on the on the on the Primera Division team, uh, he played as a central midfielder. And he made three, four runs and uh, got fouled in every single one of them, two yellow cards. He looked like he wanted to score. Mm. Uh, and It's just an impressive performance. And, and I remember distinctly that I, I was thinking, man, this is really conservative. He's already win- uh, leading 2-0 and he's taking five centre-backs. But then I saw Sanchez play and it's like, I forgot that Del Bosque coached Sanchez when he was in the youth teams and that he knew very well that Sanchez could do a, a pretty decent job uh, next to Redondo in the middle of, of the park.
0: How much of the Del Bosque bringing Sanchez on, though, do you think, was sentimental? Because they, they he felt like they oh, had already won the game and this may have been his last huge. game ever.
1: Yes, he was 35. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. That's That was kind of... Uh, uh, the recognition of of a career in which he only played for Real Madrid. That's that was his only team for 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 the full time, full fifteen sixteen years he played.
0: Yeah. yeah, he should have retired after that game, I think, because he came back and then only played five games the next year. That should have been his last yeah. game ever, if you ask me.
1: Yeah, could have been could have been a great great way to say goodbye. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, very fitting. If it would have been perfect icing on the cake, if Hierro had have scored that free kick or Sanchez had have scored, but. Um either way, it was a, obviously a great result. Um,
1: anything else? Only there? one more thing. Mm-hmm. Two two heroes of this uh, Champions League that are forever in our minds as Real Madrid fans. Karen B, awful player, uh, <laughs> but got a key goal that he hit the ball like uh, no football player would ever do, and he scored. Uh, on the quarterfinals and then the semifinals, it was Anelka who's, who headed home at Munich, and uh, we didn't have a very good track record playing against Bayern Munich. And this was like the first time in 20 years that we managed to to uh, outclass them in in a in a two leg uh, competition. And from then, then it became more more. Uh, I wouldn't say easier, but it, it became more... Uh, uh, we did it more often than than before. So, Karambéan and Elka... It, I mean, bizarre players, if you take a look at their careers, but um, in for this Champions League, they were absolutely key. Wait,
0: who was it that Karambéan scored against? Because he didn't score in the quarterfinal, because that was the Manchester United one, right?
1: Um, Was it before that? I'm going to have to, to look it up, okay. but... Now I'm
0: curious... It, because it was, because uh, yeah, because the against Manchester and all the it's goals Borussia. came in the second
1: it's, leg. It was against Borussia. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I mean, in fact, if you if you Google Karimbe goal, <laughs> it <laughs> goes totally straight to Borussia. To <laughs> <laughs> Great! Hey, how this? That was the night that that the goal fell over. Oh,
0: uh.
2: was
1: it? Let me check. This is.
0: This sounds like another no, that historical was,
1: segment. Um, I'm probably <laughs> mixing European cups. Am I? Was this 98?
0: You're going all the way back to 98, maybe?
1: Uh, yes, 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 yes. This is my mistake. Okay. This was 98. Yeah, the, uh, the, then let's keep only an Elka as a hero for this one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll bring forward the Carambo one to a future segment. Great, <laughs> yeah.
1: great, excellent. Um, okay, this was great.
0: Okay, thanks for joining, Ed. Thanks, Ed. Cheers. Take care. Thank
1: you, Matt.
0: Hey. All right, Matt. Um, I I want to well, point out that Ikra Casillas looked like he was 10 years old in this game. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Well, and I, I mean, kind of just building off of uh, quickly on what Ed just said about Anelka, what did you make of his uh, performance? Because I kind of felt like Anelka was the guy he was really isolated from the rest of the team like didn't really feel like he fit in but once he got the ball i felt like he was the one guy who could produce something out of nothing like if something was going to happen and just kind of out of nowhere especially early in the first like the first half before anyone had scored i felt like he was the guy who could maybe change the game
0: he was the hold up guy to me like he was the guy isolated for sure often and most often the highest guy up the pitch would receive passes and just wait for teammates to arrive. And then on the odd chance he would... I mean, he he was able to... He had a couple nice dribbling sequences in the first half, which got him into the box. Uh, But most of his shots seemed to come from pretty acute angles, right? Like, the two big ones he had. um, One in the first half, one in the second half, were just too acute for for Canizares to be troubled. But um, he also... He had that header in the first half, which was... He had... Three. He had another header like that. Uh, actually, throughout the season, I remember he had two headers identical to that. Whereas, like uh, he can get so much power on the ball, and that's a tough one to put power on. I think because he was like almost not fading away, but like he was distant from the goal. He was almost at the top of the box. He generates so much power on the header. Um, Canizaro saved it, but he had an identical like that one like that against Bayern, and then one again. Barca earlier in the season where uh, it was saved just in the same manner so like he uh, to me he's just like uh, the hold up guy who could who could take chances and and create them but um I guess you one of the most bizarre Real Madrid careers really I think can think of (laughs) yeah so just bizarre career in general yeah uh but also like had his moments like with Chelsea he was quite good obviously with Arsenal he was quite good when we signed him yeah um a weird blip at Real Madrid, but ultimately uh, a blip. I think most Real Madrid fans are thankful for by the end of it because I don't know if they get to the final without him. Yeah. Um, let's see, Roberto Carlos. We talked about. Is it? This is a question I wanted to
2: uh, ask both you and Ed, and because I just I thought he was great. Um, Helguera. Is it fair to say that Helguera is one of the? Maybe most underrated players in Real Madrid history. I mean, in the past twenty had, years,
0: for sure. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, he had a crunching scissor tackle that kind of set the tone in the second half, and basically sent a message to the whole Valencia team saying no one's getting through. And I just thought he was so good uh, in the whole game. And then we watched previous historical segments where he's in center midfield and looked good. And like he's just been—he uh, was even part of that 2006 team that made the incredible comeback, and initially. Capello wanted him ousted from the squad, didn't give him a squad number, took away his number six squad number. He had number 21. And then he somehow made his way back into the starting lineup and was crucial. And I just feel like he's a really, really underrated
0: player. He was immense in this game. Like some of his challenges were incredible. Um, His position was incredible. He, you know, kind of playing that sweeping role. He he was also very good at organizing and and kind of marshalling that back line. This was... Apart from him playing really well like, alongside McAlealy in central midfield, I, I would argue this is his best role. Because yeah. some of his best performances in Real Madrid came in, in a role like this where Del Bosque, his way of masking the fact that they had no good defenders really was to just put all of them on the field and, and defend. Because I remember even when Zidane came along, there, there was a performance in the Camp nou in the Champions League semifinals where... He had this similar thing when Zidane was there. I think it was Zidane. Uh, Solari was there in midfield. Raul was there. Figo. I don't know if Figo was in that game. But the defense was essentially Helguera and then, and then a five-man backline. And he was immense in that game as well. And Barcelona had waves of attacks and they would just, they would just ping everything away. And so, yeah, I would definitely agree that he's underrated. I think... ultimately when he transitioned full-time in a a center back in a two-man center back is when when kind of we lost him as as the in terms of like his skill set his where it was it should have been used in a different role I think
2: what and I mean this was my question is what was Iero's role this year because
0: I was surprised that he wasn't a starter Uh, I think if I'm not mistaken he he had injuries that year Uh, Okay. I believe um, because I now this is this is not me researching. This is just remembering me as a kid because I I think he had uh, injury concerns because he no way he would have otherwise he would have started over um, Campo or Karenka. There's no question. I think he was just I think he had injury concerns. He wasn't 100% fit.
2: I laughed at, it, and I think it's so funny that Ed basically said this was Ivan Campo's best performance ever because, <laughs> I uh, the, what I remember of Ivan Campo is just like when he was at his like last year's at like Bolton, and he was kind of heavy yeah. set and like didn't really, and so he was uh, clumsy, yeah. And but he was, I mean, he had played really, really well. He was a kid. high
0: ceiling, low floor type defender, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um. Talked about Raul, talked about and just talked about man-to-man. Our boy Mauricio Pellegrino in the, Val- in the Valencia backline had a couple nice challenges. <laughs> yeah. Um, the second half was just was pretty fun because it was just um, essentially Real Madrid dispossessing players, particularly Redondo, and then and Valencia outnumbered on the counter attack. It was just kind of that all game and all uh, well, the second half, and I. I think roberto redondo deserves a shout-out here because um apart from Roberto Carlos he was the standout for me in the sense that i just this was uh, this was obviously this is actually if you think about it de facto like his last good game ever in in his in his uh, career because after this he got injured and was sold he was sold and then injured that was the order um to milan and um but this was still very much his peak. Like some of his touches, his shoulder feints, like he would not settle for an easy pass. He would just get out of a tighter spot to get a vertical pass in. Um his the way he dispossessed players, the way he carried the ball off the pitch, just an insanely fun player.
2: Yeah, and I think in addition to Redondo, I thought Roberto Carlos and Raul, who obviously but we talked about already, but I thought those guys were up there as well. And I mean, this was I agree with you, this was peak Raul and his uh, he had some like really inc- nice, just beautiful technical skills, doing L turns and yeah. uh, just rolling on the ball in the middle of the pitch and getting through, driving through the midfield. And that finish, I mean, that finish is not easy. On especially one, he's it feels like he's got an eternity. He's dribbling into a cow's field, about to go one v one with Kani who in in himself is a great goalkeeper, um, beats him. But one, once he beats Kani uh, I forget who was the defend. I can't remember which Valencia defender it was that
0: he came close, made it.
2: Yeah, it like Raul. It, it, Raul had kind of made his angle tight, and that defender was right on the line. It the ball just barely missed him, so that was and it was on his
0: right foot. I was very yeah. worried that that wasn't going to go in, and then he squeezed it through barely. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was that definitely was a fitting ending to this entire thing. So uh, we should also preface this by saying like. Honestly, go back. This Real Madrid was terrible this year, in that year. <laughs> uh, they, they were completely terrible in La Liga. They came fifth. They wouldn't have qualified for the Champions League the year after if had they not won this game. Um, they had an insane springtime run, a classic run in the spring. This is like classic Zidane era. <laughs> the team when the Champions League knockout phase hit, they just went to this whole other gear. They they were the first team ever to defeat the finalists from the previous year uh, and knock them out. So they beat Manchester United, obviously, in the quarterfinals, semifinals, they beat Bayern, who were the two finalists from the year before. Then they won the final in the first ever final where two teams from the same country meet in the final. And um, they just went to a gear. The only other memorable game they had this entire season from a domestic standpoint was this was also the Raul Shush celebration in the Camp Nou uh, where they tied 2-2 and he scores at the end in, a, in one of the wildest classic ever. That, should be, right. that yeah. should be one of the games we do watch eventually. But um, yeah, this was not a good team, but to me, uh, a, a collection of individually brilliant legends all at their peak that carried them when it mattered is how I view it. That sounds so familiar. And this
2: game kind of had, like by the end of it, the second half when it was kind of done and dusted, it kind of felt, you kind of had that feeling you did when um, Real Madrid were up versus Juventus in the Champions League final. And you're kind of in cruise control and could just enjoy the final. And that's kind of how it felt with this one as well.
0: So what happens if you put this team in a time machine and put them in, I don't know, in last year's Champions League final against Liverpool? Well, if they...
2: Well, actually, I mean, you think about how deep they sat. Because um, I was going to say, if they allow everyone that amount of space in between the lines, especially in the midfield, everyone's just going to drive at them and take them on 1v1. But, I mean, no, again, no one... Mane, Salah, they're not going to be making runs in behind because there's no space. So, um, and Liverpool really don't have the they would need more technicians in midfield to be able to kind of um, dribble, utilize that space that they have and dribble at the back line and find the right pass. So it may be closer than we think, um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it It's tough. It's tough. I mean, you've, like you said, you've got collection of individuals that no matter the time era, uh, Raul, Roberto Carlos, Redondo, I mean, these guys, they can get it done, but yeah, um, it's just, Tactically, how, how would they fare? Is is another question.
0: Yeah, though I would trust those guys to hold up and have a big game. I think the game plan would have to be: you essentially have to break Liverpool's press and then, and then rely on Roberto Carlos and Redon and McManaman to bring the ball, carry the ball forward on the counter attack and feed Morientes and Anaka, And I would maybe think about benching Morientes for. I don't know if there was any who was on the bench. Maybe you put Savio. in Savio, who's still yeah. really the only one I would think I could think of, just to provide an extra midfield presence and uh <clears throat> and also good offensive player who could who could help with the counterattack, but I guess it's possible. I think I would rely a lot on Roberto Carlos because yeah. he's have a player that could potentially keep uh, both Fernando Alexander Alexander Arnold and Salah and check or think they could think think twice about getting forward or something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it would be tough. I honestly that was my takeaway from this. I thought it was a mess. Um <laughs> It wasn't it was a it was a mess in the sense that I think if Valencia were a better passing team, they would have exploited Real Madrid. Yeah, I I
2: mean I honestly the whole game just couldn't get over the amount of space each team had. It was yeah. Even on the ball I mean, even on the ball, they just had so much time and so much space to dribble, to do what they wanted. It was just crazy.
0: Having said that, I mean, they they literally were incredible against Manchester United, who were, at the time, like almost the the Liverpool of the time, um, possibly better. Like, that was a very historic Manchester United team with, like, Beckham in his prime, Giggs, Keane, skulls all in their prime. So, I don't know who, who am I to say they, they wouldn't be able to beat um, Liverpool in the final maybe they could if they beat that Manchester United team it's funny when I was writing my Raul piece yesterday um, one of the interviews I came across with he was doing with the Guardian in 2000 I believe it was 2011 he was talking about his the best moments against Manchester United and he said um, obviously he brought up the redondo tagonazo and the fact that they won 3-2 and uh, when no one believed they could, he said that if that game wore on for like five more minutes, he he doesn't think they would have advanced because mm. it was it was 3-0 for them, and then it was three two, and I had a bunch of momentum. And he's like we were just holding on. If that game had gone for five more minutes, know, he he didn't like their chances. So yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Um, anything else from this game?
2: No, I think I think we pretty much covered everything. Yeah,
0: I think so too. Alright. Um, well, Matt, this was great. Um, and uh, you and I will be back Tuesday at the latest, so we'll, uh, we'll let chat then. Uh, thanks so much. Hala Marie. Hala Madrid. Quick break to give some Patreon shoutouts before we get into part two, our mailbag with Lucas. Um, Patreon.com slash Madrid is where you go to pledge. Get access to bonus shows, our loan tracker on Tuesday mornings, which we um, take great joy and we review all the players on loan from the weekend and Update you on how they did in detail and uh, other bonus shows that will be plenty this season and other rewards. So, patreon.com/slash managing madrid. Go join the army. Shout out to these $10 plus patrons who, um, if you pledge $10 or more, you get a specific shout out on the podcast. So, shout out and thank you to Mikhail Nilsson, Frederick Sundros, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Adam Dorsey, Frederick Rantakiro, Pascal Said, Leon and Bjorn Salvador, Christian Gonzalez, Essa Hariri, Ilian Zacco, Yahya Ibrahim, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Tyler Simon, Saad Omar, Oluwapamimo Dunjoy, Patrick Odayafadi, Christian Toft, Dan Berthey, Charles Williams, Tarek Sphere, Kunal Tilakar, Marin Myrtle, Tyler Dixon, Raul Gutierrez, Raghav Potluri, Vicky Cohen. Gary Kohut, Sujaywani, Wani, Pena Madridista, San Francisco Bay Area, Brennan Stevens, Casper Moscala, Katherine Fagundo, Zoran Bosnich, Crystal Glass, Rafael Servia, Karen Scherer, Somanshu Singh, Brennan Powers, Rovi Tariev, Amy L., Anthony Armesto, Shabaz Sharapov, Fabian Moreno, Varun, Bernard Kufour, Jack Edgar, Ashik Bashar, AMB 6901, Daniel Pinckney, Magnus Lext, Jason Fitz, Anton Hackberg, and Solomon Ortiz, and Philip Hammer, who has just joined the Army. Thank you so much, guys. You guys are freaking awesome. And on to part two with Lucas Navarrete and myself. All right. Welcome to part two of the Managing Madrid podcast. It is your weekly mailbag with myself and Lucas Navarrete, um, which is uh, a weekly thing now. Um, this is the third week running, I believe. Lucas, how are you doing?
3: Hey, Kian, thanks for having me. I'm enjoying
0: those. I am too, and people are as well. Um, international break. It kind of... Sucks. It sucks, but also, don't you think it's also a, like, a good time because the clubs regroup, yeah, regroup after the couple of bad results and then also we have injuries, right? This, give, this yeah. buys us a little time.
3: Yeah.
0: What's the update on the injuries? What do We, we have Hazard coming back, you think? We'll be back in time?
3: Yeah, I think he'll be back in time for Levante, just like Brahim and Rodrigo, even though Rodrigo will probably spend some time with Castilla before before being involved with the first team. But I, uh, I'm i optimistic with Hazard. I think he'll be back for, for Levante, even though maybe he, he'll be for only like 20 or 30 minutes, just to be careful and you yeah. know to have him yeah. completely ready for, for the tough games ahead.
0: Okay, so we have a bunch of questions we want to go through, and uh, we're going to start with... Um, our patron Casper Moscala. Casper says, "Wasn't the Ramos blunder against Villarreal actually a sign of two things? One, Mendy's, Mendy playing his first game and our bad positioning in midfield, um, with all the pains of Casemiro playing as an attacking midfielder. If you look at Ramos's mistake, it's not really that much his. Um, he wants to pass to Mendy to the left, but Mendy runs too fast, too far, just as he's about to hit the ball." This avenue is blocked by the midfielder. Ramos blunders, and then another Area player runs from behind, crows, and steals the ball.
3: I kind of agree with the second part of it, like the bad positioning in the midfield and, you know, the lack of a playmaker in that part, a deep playmaker, if you like. But not much about, you know, Mendy playing his first game. First of all, I think Mendy was excellent in this game. Mm-hmm. And even though you kind of understand that he might not be used to this Ramos's style of play or where Ramos wants his teammates to be and all that I mean you get that.' it's, it's pretty reasonable in my opinion. but I, I, first of all I think it was a Ramos mistake 100% but maybe one which might not happen if you have a, a deep playmaker there.
0: I've watched it a few times, over yeah. and over again, and no matter how I twisted, how I look at it, I don't. There, Mendy has no fault in this. Nah, Mendy no. No, men, Like even if you look at that passing lane, first of all, Ramos could have passed it earlier, um, and he still, yeah. even the time he goes dispossessed, he could have, he could have still had that angle. But I think, above all, and, and you know, Omen, I talked about this a little bit after the game that, you're even if there's a scenario where you have nothing, you have no outlets, no, no one to show for, isn't this essentially all you have to do is just kick it out of bounds or kick it up the field. This yeah. is like fundamental exactly. stuff, right? Um
3: Yeah, like Calderosa um, against Celta, it's the same.
0: Yeah, exactly. He it's same, same exactly the same thing. Situation where he could have you could have just kicked it out. Um I it's a bit it was a bit of a surprising mistake from Ramos. Um and Well, uh, not
3: really. <laughs> I mean, it's it's fairly common during a season this mistake uh, from Ramos, you know, kind of trying too hard uh making a play when it's probably not what he should be doing so i mean yeah even though he's obviously a great defender and he makes plays from the defensive side of the of the field which is obviously not easy but you kind of get a couple of these throughout an entire season which obviously it's reasonable in a 60 game season
0: that's true. Um, I mean, I, I big game Ramos probably doesn't make a mistake like this, but exactly. over, over the course of a season, he does have several brain farts. One of them being stuff like this. The other being losing his head or or committing a bad challenge. Um,
3: yeah, remember the Liga against uh, the the Liga with Ancelotti in the first season when you know Madrid had an advantage to to win it and ended up kind of giving up strange games against Valladolid and Celta I remember some big mistakes from Ramos in, in, in that last part of, of the 2013-14 season
0: as far as I remember even Ramos last season had these moments where you, like red cards like when the, when the team like absolutely can't afford to lose a player on the pitch at that yeah. time you know it, hap- it happens a lot with him um, Yeah. Brennan Powers says was then using three different different lineups what would what lineup would you use for the next
3: game? Well, first of all we need to remember that Bale will be suspended because of the red car he saw in Villarreal. Which and, I believe and, the
0: club tried to appeal but they they were unsuccessful.
3: Yeah, unsuccessful yeah, it'll be a one game suspension, so I mean not the worst of the outcomes. And then we we need to, you know, to, to see if Bay, uh, if James and, and Isco are, are ready to come back, Hazard also. Assuming all three of them come back, including Brahim as well, I'd like to see Vinicius on uh, on the right again with and this time with Hazard and Benzema up front. I'd like to, to to see that trio playing again and um well actually making their official debut in in, in La Liga, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's I, Rodrigo. I don't think it it gets to playing Rodrigo, nah, but he is so. he is back. He's also another one. So it is. Uh, everyone seems to be coming back at the same time, which is, I guess, I mean, ideally you'd like to have Bale, but the timing works maybe out. Not Isco. What maybe not Isco?
3: Yeah, I think he hasn't trained with the squad yet, and I'm, I'm not too optimistic with him.
0: I uh, I do like I'm I'm glad we have an international break. Really, now the more I think about it, because if if the scenario was that the game against Levante was this weekend, like in two days, oh, yeah. then it makes it more difficult for Zidane to risk someone like James. uh yeah. or Hazard, right? Um, this way, and and in which case we would probably see something like Lucas Vazquez and maybe Vinicius on the left, because Vazquez goes on the right with the with a little bit more time for these people to come back. You you could. I could more realistically see James and Hazard in the lineup or at least Hazard or at least James of Hazard needs some time off the bench. Yeah. Um, also, maybe,
3: mm. maybe we get to see Militao considering that both Ramos and Baran might be tired after the two FIFA games. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a good opportunity for Militao to, to get some minutes considering that he's not a starter for Brazil.
0: Um, the only thing about that is that I, don't, I mean, I, don't, I haven't looked at Brazil's schedule but there seems when with South American players, there is a little bit of extra fatigue, isn't there? Because you have to travel so far. Yeah, I'll
3: travel. Yeah.
0: Because um, I was thinking about Fede Valverde giving like you know Modric a rest or whatever. But there is there is always that that that's why Barca seemed to be over the years a tiny bit vulnerable. Yeah. After the international break, because like their entire attack was South American.
3: Yeah, makes sense. But I mean, that would be if a player you know gets. Plenty of minutes. I mean, Militao should pretty much stay on the bench for those two games. And even though you know, obviously traveling and the jet lag and all that gets that increases your fatigue. I mean, Militao yeah. I think should be should be fairly ready.
0: Um, it might make a case though for uh, for Casemiro to get some rest when he comes back though. Possibly. Yeah, <laughs> Well, you might maybe maybe there's like a Valverde Cruz motor. Something happens. Something brews there if Casemiro wants gets some extra time after the international break. I don't know. Just who, who knows? Um, Marcelo, I don't I don't know what's the latest with him. But as far as I know, he still had he's still not being called up to Brazil. Is he or is he back with the national? No, team? Not, he's yeah. not. I don't. So if if he stays in Madrid during this whole time, then he could easily start the next game too.
3: Yeah, I'm fairly sure. Yeah. Uh,
0: Tyler Dixon says. I get the Maririsa pessimism, but man, we haven't lost. We've dominated the three games at times and are missing our most expensive signing to injury. Can we relax a little? Thanks for the good work and cheers, guys. Are you relaxed?
3: No, not really. Not really. These last two games have been tough. Uh, especially the one in... I guess, Valladolid. Mm, the one in Villarreal was... Could have been... Should have been better... But I kind of understand that um, that kind of game is true. That the second half was much much better from from Madrid, but the one in Valladolid is the one that gets me very very worried. Especially considering that you know the players kind of made a statement in the in the opening game against Celta, and it was such a big letdown to let those two points go away at home against you know without the respect a mediocre team that you know i'm kind of worried about madrid's chances in la liga this year i from I, what yeah from what yeah
0: from what, observed, from what i've observed there's like just kind of dealing with um or i I just seen comments and the and how madrid is reacting to it there's two different kinds of reactions to the season so far one is the the faction that, you know, are saying, just chill. It's it's so early. Zidane has won us this. You know, we have great players. It we we were unlucky against Svaidali. We were unlucky against Villarreal. If it wasn't yeah. for Ramos's mistake, we would have won. If it if it wasn't for, I don't know, this player missing that, we would have won. It's not Zidane's fault. Ramos made a mistake, yeah. blah blah blah. And then there's the there's the opposite extreme, which is um everything we we're, we're we're just this is a disaster. I'm kind of in between if I'm being honest. And I don't really I I don't really, I don't know. I guess you're more than welcome to believe what you want to believe, and I'm, that's fine with me. But I'm kind of in between in the sense that I would be more relaxed if I if this was just a small hiccup along the way. It doesn't. We have way larger sample size to, and I and I do believe there is room for genuine concern. And I think exactly. And it's like if okay, if your argument is if Ramos didn't make that mistake, okay, so. But then that's acting like Real Madrid had created enough chances to score like three, five goals. If exactly. you look at the XG in this game it was neck and neck. So it's not like oh no. you know. You you know where I'm going with this, right? I think there is like somewhere yeah, in yeah, between there's like this there's this view that I think where I am where it's like it might get better, but I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't.
3: Yeah, the thing is everyone keeps saying that if it weren't for those small mistakes, Real Madrid should have won, deserved to win and everything but Real Madrid has made those mistakes for the last year and a half probably so yeah, it's tough to believe that those small mistakes will, will go away you know that easily you know
0: <clears throat> yeah I, I also believe that football should be played a way that one mistake shouldn't be the cause of your demise I think if you're if you're making ten mistakes and you lose, I get it. If you're making one mistake and you're not, and you're not winning, then that means you're not creating enough to mask a mistake. So because yeah, mistakes exactly. in football are it's part of football. Like mistakes are going to happen. Exactly. So how are you going to yeah. overcome those mistakes? You, right now, I just i I don't blame you if you're worried. Uh. Frederick Rantakiro says, I don't understand some of the loan deals we're making. Why is it such a hurry to develop players at the highest level possible when there is a high risk that the players don't get playing time at all? In most cases, would it not be better to take it step by step? Like, if a player performs in Castilla, then you loan him out to a Segunda team for a season. And if he performs in a Segunda, you loan him out to a Primera team. For example, I thought it was crazy to loan Mayoral out to Wolfsburg, and he hasn't recovered yet from that loan spell. And it's so frustrating seeing Lunin sitting on the bench again this season. I mean, wouldn't it be better if he if last season he was loaned out to a team in a lower tier where he would be guaranteed starter instead of wasting a year on the bench for a La Liga team?
3: I see, I, I see his point. I actually kind of agree with it in, in the sense that obviously for Lurin it doesn't make any kind of sense to spend last season in Leganes not playing at all. Things aren't promising for him in, in Valladolid so far. And, but about Mayoral, for example, he uses the example of Mayoral, and I just think probably Mayoral just wasn't and will never be good enough to play for a team like Wolfsburg. Yeah, I agree. he's decent for Levante, okay, but that's the kind of level he he can reach. And Real Madrid were hoping for for something better from him, and he just never reached that kind of potential he showed with the juvenil. So. But yeah. of course, if you if you talk to me about about loaning, pff, that it's hard to 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 reason against against that kind of of point because it just doesn't make any sense to to loan him, if you don't get any kind of guarantee that he will get the minutes he needs.
0: Well, yeah, with Mayoral, when when he went to Wolfsburg during that whole year, um, I was disappointed obviously that he didn't play, and then I I said to myself, well. That was a disaster, but maybe if he goes somewhere else, um, he may get playing time and he may just get back on track to where his trajectory was during Castilla, where he was really good and more promising yeah. than Mariano. By the way, at the time I thought. Um, yeah, but, definitely. But then over time, you just you just watch him because now he's had plenty of opportunities, and now you just realize he's not good enough. So there's that. Sure. Uh, if he was good enough, he would overcome it. Like I don't is it, uh, essential ultimately talent and hard work will get you. To where you yeah. need to be, I think, despite relapses yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, but Lunin, I agree with you. Lunin, um, it's bizarre to me that we looked at and 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 I imagine when you loan players, how you have conversations with the team. Obviously, you're loaning them out to at uh, Leganés. There was Cuellar, who was who had one of the better performances of any La Liga goalkeeper relative to their team uh, last season, and then. Valladolid has Masip who also was in that category of like really good performances all throughout the year. So and and by the way these player these teams that are loaning them getting the loan player they have no really vested interest to develop that player because they know they're not getting yeah. him back. So yeah. I agree with this point like with Lunin we had another scenario which um if he was going to be a backup wouldn't it be better just to be to be Courtois backup. I mean maybe the club thought that was risky maybe they didn't know whether Kayler was leaving or not I guess there's that yeah that, that,
3: yeah that's uh that's the main thing I think
0: but isn't there like a, a team where you can just go start I'm sure there is
3: yeah yeah and, and the thing is also that goalkeepers in Spain if you look at it I believe that they are you know chemistry is really important in in inside the dressing room and players like uh, like Cuellar and, and Masip i look at them and, and see those kinds of uh, leaders in the in the dressing room and it's not easy to bench them I mean, you know they they've been there for for a while they are experienced goalkeepers in spanish football most of the team knows them for for quite some years so it's not it's not easy to to bench them in favor of uh, of a player on loan who just got to the Spanish league, in my opinion.
0: Um, Question from Josie De Santos. He says, where do you think Kaler ranks in terms of our all-time goalkeepers?
3: Are we talking quality, legacy? Uh... It's tough to to answer. If if we're talking about quality, I I don't think he's one of the greatest.
0: Let's start with quality. quality.
3: Yeah, well, in terms of quality, he definitely... Mm -hmm maybe top 10 all the time top 5 top 5 I'm not so sure but he 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 basically won the the three Champions League titles but he wasn't as brilliant as the as the best in the history of the club I don't think
0: well that's for sure but I I guess like he is also he wins in the sense that he was part of a a magical era that exactly um you know that augments his legacy obviously um I was I was looking at the club's greatest goalkeepers. I think, I actually think if you if you rank him by quality, somehow it's better for him than ranking him by legacy. Because if you rank him by yeah. legacy, I know that sounds weird to say, but like, for example, someone like Ricardo Zamora, who is regarded as one of the best goalkeepers in the yeah. club history, played in the 30s. There's no way I'm gonna put him over no, Taylor. No, no, no. I have no idea what this guy what this guy was facing in the 30s. Was he was he facing yeah, anything? Yeah, that right? comparison
3: is unfair. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Obviously Iker is number one. Um I think Pacabuyo is easily above Kalar to me.
3: I like Bolo Ilner too.
0: Ilgner was really good. Um I know. I'd imagine if you polled like every Maradista on earth who knew both, I think Kayler would win the popularity contest, there's no question. Um yeah, probably. but but you know, he has to be mentioned and then um and then you have also um The goalkeeper who played in the Yaya era, which was Miguel Angel Suarez, who was there for you know over a over a dozen, almost twenty years actually, and he won a Champions League title or European title as it was called then. Um, He won multiple La Ligas, so like he's there. But I guess in terms of legacy, I think and if you combine everything, legacy quality, he's probably somewhere between five and ten.
3: Yeah, if you think about it, I don't think Real Madrid is a club of you know great historic goalkeepers other than casillas probably.
0: no that's the thing that's what gets yeah. him in the other one to mention yeah. is juan alonso who was part of the dsta he was the goalkeeper during the d era, and obviously by- and in one million titles with him too so
3: yeah but you you see teams like bayern munich getting can getting neuer and you know those world-class goalkeepers and you know the only world-class goalkeeper I can think of in Madrid is definitely Casillas. I don't think Keylor at his prime was, you know, a top three goalkeeper in the world. I don't think
0: top three he was never. No, 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 no. definitely not. Um, where are we? Okay, so question from Varun. He says, "I seriously think our much famed and legendary trio of Modric, Casemiro, and Kroos has one last season of brilliance together. It looks like many fans don't buy into this idea of mine. From whatever, what we have seen this season, it, this trio looks like they are reaching their magic again. My dear MM experts, please throw some light into this and let me know, can this trio produce magic again? And with the help of other players, can we finally achieve our treble this season? I actually believe we can win the treble this season.
1: Well, optimistic, Varun. I'm
0: very worried, uh, uh... Varun. Please, just keep... I, I don't want you to get disappointed. Very worried. Lower your <laughs> expectations a little bit.
3: Well, I'm I, I'm definitely worried about the midfield. Of course, they have the quality to turn it around. Even though Modric will not get any younger, but there are still three world class midfielders. But I, I I'm not sure why. But I just think that other teams might be ready and prepared to you know to do the things that gets all three of them uncomfortable and you know prepared for for playing against Madrid. So I'm I i I'm just not sure. Of course, they are all three three quality midfielders. They've done great seasons. They they were key parts of, of Madrid's uh, 3 pit in the Champions League. But uh, as I said last week, I think Madrid needed something else to go for their, for their midfield.
0: I kind of want to read another question that ties into this a little bit and then maybe yeah. we can tackle both. So... Humayun Kabir-Sumon says, should we be worried about Varan? After Pepe left, he was supposed to be our main man along with Ramos in the defense. But so far, he's been inconsistent with his performance. How about Zidane benches him for Militao and see how he does? I just want to point out that if there was a way to erase World Cup 2000... Uh, was it 18? 18, yeah. Erase 18. it from the history books. That's when everything everything changed so wrong yeah everyone that went into that tournament in their peak modric varan Kroos, i don't know who else casemiro maybe you could throw into that um although Casemiro's still really young like marcelo they just they were not the same after that i don't know what happened if there was something there in the water or, or what it was <laughs> but i will say about like varan i actually think i think the criticism varan is insanely harsh
3: i, I completely agree yeah. i was thinking the exact same when I read the question, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think the part most the main reason why is because he's literally he's, exposed. he's so yeah. exposed. No other defender has to do what he does. He has no. like, to me. He has like one of the toughest assignments in football, and that's essentially yeah. defending things on his own.
3: Not not even Ramos. Oh, hold on. I, I mean, it's not a matter of Real Madrid center back. He's Baran the ones who holds the team together, in my opinion, defensively.
0: He is Ramos is more not... out of position too than yeah, and Baran has def- to mop it
3: up. Definitely. Varane has to clean up everyone's mistakes, and even though, of course, I agree that he's not the, you know, that brilliant jaw-dropping player we saw in the in Mourinho's third year. You know, after that knee injury, he kind of dropped a little bit. He wasn't, he he's not as physical as he was, but I, I still think he's what holds this team's defense together. Uh, and R- Ramos is out of position. Many times, and obviously, he, he he Varane also is the last man standing behind Marcelo, Ramos, Carvajal, Casemiro, Kroos, and Modric. This is just come on, he, he's exposed like ninety percent of the game.
0: That the goal, the Villarreal goal, was isn't that like the prototypical example you should show when you talk about Varane's issues? Because when Ramos gives the ball away, he has to cover two people, yeah, and he has a choice between going marking one player or the other and he's screwed almost either way like he can't do anything yeah, yeah, yeah. he's almost exactly. he's helpless in that situation like and then yeah. i hope and and i don't know i don't think that particular goal anyone blamed varan but people will come out of situations like that thinking varan is finished, and it's not it's not fair to him i think so i think yeah. the the answer to this question is always like how can we improve our system and our scheme rather than how do we upgrade varan because i don't think you just upgrade varan with many players
3: no 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 and and that's exactly what you said it's it's a matter of you know improving the tactics and the formation and you know the, the cohesion of the team so that baran is not as exposed as often as he is now
0: he also like with with ramos being so out of position like you said at times he has to cover for both wing backs. so sometimes he has to come yeah. over to define himself defend behind marcelo or other times he's behind carvajal so like he's yeah. he's completely alone and Casemiro, again, is not in that role to cover. He's, like, up the pitch somewhere. So that yeah. leaves you... There were so many times in that Villarreal game, it was it was Ramos, Varane, and Kroos, if that, defending, and nobody else. Yeah. Um, I think we'll take one more, Lucas. Um, okay. This one is from Ben Matheson. He says, Do you guys think with what happened after Bale, James, and really all around Europe with players on huge contracts... Um, will will this deter Real Madrid in the future from giving players big money or from renewing players so often, knowing it doesn't work out and there is basically nowhere the player can go?
3: It's a very interesting question because I do think that Real Madrid needs to change the way their, you know, the escala salarial, they call it, I really don't know how to translate that, it's like, you know, a salary ladder. (laughs) <laughs> in, a, in a literal sense, which is that the top players get around 20 million, there's a second tier of 10, 12 million, and then there's a third tier of 5, 4. So, uh, I mean, pretty much every other club, in a uh, big club in Europe is paying way bigger ha- uh, salaries than, than those Real Madrid are playing right now. And that's the main reason why Real Madrid... M- might not be able to get, you know, the Galacticos. They're trying to get. Um, in terms of the mistakes of of giving Bale and James those kind of questionable extensions, I just think that mm, this is something Real Madrid might need to do more often than in the next few years if they really want to to find those those stars in the market. Because I mean, no player is going to leave, let's say, a big club like. PSG, where Mbappe might get 30 million if he signs, if he agrees to an extension, he he's not going to walk out of that contract to to sign for 15 million in, in for Real Madrid. I don't think so. It, it, it might be tough, but it's it's the way the market is going at the moment. I think.
0: Yeah, it's the way the market is going, and I so I think there's there's obviously this delicate balance of a you don't want to lose your superstar, so you have to overpay him, so no one else nabs him up. Yeah. Or B you. You risk losing him. Um, as, and when they get older, it's a bit more tricky, right? And I think Florentino generally has been good about not overpaying older players, um, yeah, and giving them those contract extensions that they want at the end of their careers. Yep. Don't you see this in the NBA a lot, Lucas? Like some of the contracts that are given to older players that uh, well, are just Paul. a nightmare. Yeah, Chris Paul is <laughs> yeah. one. John Wall is a is a nightmare one, but I guess that's different. He got injured, and it's just a nightmare now. Yeah. Um, yeah. In some ways, Real Madrid are lucky. It's not like anything disastrous, like Alexis Sanchez. Like Bale, at least you can use at this point.
3: Yeah, no. In my opinion, also, um, but Real Madrid have a, a bit of a problem here with uh, with you know their their big players like you know Laporte's earning probably five or six million more than Baran at the moment. Mm. That's questionable, and Baran has every right to, to, to go to Florentino and say, "Come on, well, what's happening here?" Because Baran is obviously a better player than than Laporte at the moment, and he's, he deserves that kind of money. And the same kind of goes for for Cross. We see other midfielders in Europe earning more than Cross. Probably we saw it with Modric last season when he kind of pushed for a new deal, even though you know that's not what. He probably likes to hear, but it's what happened anyway. And it's just it's just tough for Madrid to to accept that new market, but they'll have to do it because you know Baran is not going to accept earning ten million when other colleagues from in in European football are earning twice. So
0: yeah, yeah. And some of this is also yeah. sometimes the 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 conflicting, I guess, views of the coach and president can also change things, right? So like. If if Ancelotti was still around, hypothetically, that James contract becomes less problematic, right?
3: Yeah, that's true.
0: like so. There's also that. Like it depends on like if the if the board and the coach are in sync. Um, the Hamis probably is one of the most played people we've had in the past few years. I assume I could be wrong about about that, but all signs point to to him being more involved in the team if, if Ancelotti Def- is still around.
3: Yeah, definitely, and that's why I think you know the the kind of power a manager in England has is very useful because, you know, he gives, he decides transfers, he decides contracts and I, uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense if Madrid decides to pay 100 million for a player and then that player is not on next coach's plans for for the season. Imagine if Zidane walks away this season because, you know, things don't go well or whatever and, you know, the next coach just thinks Hazard is not as valuable as Real Madrid decided he was so yeah
0: yeah yeah um, there's there's all of that um, I mean this this is a discussion I'm about to drop the sporting director bomb I like the sporting director changes a lot of that but I don't really want to get into that now because I think we've talked about it so much in the past couple of years that people are sick of it but um, that's essentially what a Munchie prevents is like the he makes sure the coaches coming in are buying into what the yep. club exactly want to do um, it's a deeper debate
3: but um, well I, I I must say that it's true that the the board other than Pogba the board kind of did everything Zidane wanted them to do yeah, other than they Pogba did. Yeah, yeah, they, I did. Repeat, yeah, they got Ceballos away even though Ceballos everyone in Spain knows Ceballos would be useful in Real Madrid's current roster but Zidane didn't want him here and he they sent him alone so I think he's pretty much decided. He's pretty much decided everything Real Madrid did this summer, other than Pogba. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think so too. There was like this myth floating around that the club didn't let Zidane build anything because, um, and really, I think it was just because of the Pogba thing. But it's not like they—they they tried everything they could have. Like, it's, there's nothing. I don't know what else you want them to do. Like, they couldn't get rid of Bale. They couldn't. They couldn't get Pogba. And that's yeah. it. So, like, what do you want them to do? So. Um, All right, Lucas, this was fun, always is. Um, We'll be back next Thursday for sure. And uh, for everyone listening, thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the show. And Hala Madrid.
3: Thank you guys. Hala Madrid.